Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Man, that was, um, I, I kind of wasn't done singing. We might should have ran that back. We'll, we'll run it back after the sermon. Y'all good with that? We'll run some more worship out. I don't know if you caught it. We've been going through the, book, the, the series called Hymns and trying to do some of the, the, the most famous hymns, the ones that are kind of in the top ten of most people's lists. Um, I'm not sure if you would have picked that one necessarily, although you may have caught it. Um, at the end, you'll know for certain that we are covering Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Um, a, a hymn that, at least for our church, uh, has never really gone into an archive. Uh, for whatever reason, that's a hymn we've been doing since I can remember. Uh, and so that, that particular hymn, although I think we've done them all in some capacity, this one we do write regularly. And the reason is, uh, it's the greatest news of the gospel. Um, there's, there's so much great news. We talked about holiness last week. We've, we've talked about the greatness of God. All of these things are so true. But the, the, the holiness, the greatness, the love, the mercy is most clearly put on display in the fact that Jesus paid it. His, his ransoming in us is the clearest picture of his mercy and grace to us. And so this particular song has really affected me in my life and I think many others throughout history And the series that we're going through is based out of the book of Psalms, chapter 40, verse 3, where it says that he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done, and they will be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. A hymn of praise to our God. There's a reason we do the singing. Now, I recognize that some of you have come in here today, possibly a majority of you, that aren't necessarily good singers. You may not be able to play instruments, but I bet almost all of you like some form of music. Music's a funny thing in that it kind of bridges any gap. There's not too many people I ever meet that just hate music. That's odd. That would be kind of odd. I've not run into that yet. Maybe you have. But most people like music, and the church has always been filled with music. And rightly so, because God's people have always been filled with worship. It's been true from the time of, the, of Genesis all the way up until now. So we're never going to cut this part. I know sometimes you show up and go, well, yeah, I like music, but I get in there and I feel uncomfortable. Well, there's a reason we keep the lights dim. Sing it out, friend. Your neighbor needs to know just how bad you are. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. We got you covered. We got mics. We'll sing louder. If I hear you, I'm going to go praise Jesus. That's a heck of a tone you got there. I like it. We're going to be in the book of First Peter today. And this is, uh, this is I, could preach, I could preach a whole lot of this today. I can tell you that right now. But First Peter is hiding in my Bible. Come here, you. There you are. First Peter chapter 1. And we're covering this hymn. This is a traditional hymn that, and I've been giving you a little bit of background because it's, it's enjoyable to think about how these things came to be. In 1820, a young lady was born named Elvina Hall, Elvina M. Hall. And on a Sunday in 1865, that's around the time of the Civil War, just so you know, it's a dark period in, human, or in American history. And there she is sitting in the choir loft. And uh, rather than listening to the pastor's rather lengthy sermon... <laughs> She began to think about our need for salvation and price that Jesus paid for it. Now, if you want to back off for a minute of what I'm saying and you've got a hymn to write, you go for it, my friend. You go for it. Uh, but, but she started to let her mind wander and the words began to form themselves. Before she knew it, she had already written in the little fly leaf of her hymnal the words, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. After the service... Not sure what she would get out of this. Handed the little flyleaf piece of the hymnal to her pastor and said, I'm sorry, but this came to my mind while you were preaching. And ironically, although I don't think irony is in play when it comes to God, strange perhaps, but he had just received a, a tune from organist John T. Grape, who had recently written a new tune and gave it to his pastor as well. And he put these th- two things together, and what do you know? Suddenly we have a song, which they originally titled... Fullness in Christ. A rather unusual way this beloved hymn became Jesus paid it all. I wonder, have you considered what that means for you today? Christian in the room, don't check out. This is something we need to reconsider over and over again. Because it's, it's life-changing. Not just once, but always. 
When we consider the cross and that what Jesus has done to ransom us, it's life-altering. And it can affect you tomorrow just like it did the day you heard it. And it should. Have you been considering? Maybe you're attending today, though, and you're just checking out the claims of Christ. Maybe you're just trying to figure out if there's any church anywhere that isn't weird and uncomfortable. I don't know if that's going to be us. If you walk around a bit, you'll find we're weird. Uh, because God, God just makes people, and people are unique, and I'm strange sometimes. I'll say quirky things up here because God made me uniquely the way I am. You know, what I think is probably true, if you're looking for a church that has nothing strange and you finally find it, you probably shouldn't attend because you're going to mess it up. You're going to mess it up because we're all unique and weird and quirky, and our church does unique things. And some Sundays we, we only have a three-piece band. Sometimes you never know what you're going to get here other than a cup of coffee and a smile and the worship. You're going to get that, and we're going to do our best to open up God's word. If I ever fail to do that, y'all can run me out of here because I'm going to open up his word and try to give it to you straight. Did you know, my friend, that Jesus has paid an unbelievable price for you? He's already paid it. So if you're just checking us out and you're trying to figure out what church is about, well, here's what church should be about, a Christ who gave it all for us. Did you know that the biggest unclaimed lottery prize in the U.S. history was just a few years ago? Back in 2011, a Georgia player missed out on $77 million in a Powerball. They purchased this ticket somewhere at a truck stop in Tallapoosa, Georgia. And in June 2011, the ticket expired unclaimed, or December 2011 that year rather. In fact, every year, an enormous sum of unclaimed lottery winnings are published around the world. Isn't that funny? In America, around $2 billion goes unclaimed every year. I don't know where that money goes. It doesn't seem to be helping stuff. People buy these tickets and they win the prizes, but they fail to receive it. Now, you might not see where I'm connecting these dots yet, but... The facts are this, a lottery ticket has been purchased, and it's way better. In fact, I'd tell you, don't play the lottery. Solomon says, beware of quick and easy money. Um, it's a way to just completely put yourself in debt. It is a foolish way to make money. But on the other side, it's a good picture. This unclaimed prize idea is a good picture in that for most of us, in fact, when we enter into this life, we have an unclaimed prize. We come into this life sinful and broken and far from God, but the price has already been paid. The prize is already there, wrapped, ready. But it's not yours until you claim it. That's why these things just go back into the lottery. They don't go to anybody because they don't claim it. How do we claim it? By faith. Jesus paid it all. Did he pay it all for everyone? Absolutely. But it's not yours until you receive it. And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in the Apostle Peter's first letter where he's challenging believers to live in such a way that they always remember the precious blood of Jesus that has paid for their sins. It should be a way of life, not a one-step process, but a complete and utter change of, of character. We can live in such a way remembering that Jesus has paid for our sin. I believe the text is going to give us three clear ways to live remembering that Jesus has paid for our sin. 1 Peter chapter 1 Picking up at verse 13. I would encourage you this week, because we're starting with the word therefore, that maybe you want to go back and start from verse 1, because he's already shared some important information. I'm not covering all that today. But picking up at verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That might sound familiar. We were there last week. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now don't miss this verse, church knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. This is powerful stuff. This is amazing information, and it should cause us to live differently. When we think about Jesus and what he's accomplished, it should cause us a new way of life. And here's the first way I think it changes us. It causes us to be hopeful because of his grace. That word hope in and of itself is like a crazy word. It's a word that you almost never hear people say unless they're running with Jesus. Most people are not hopeful. If you live in Rocky Mount right now, it seems like most people are in dread. They're terrified. They think our whole whole city is just going to the pot. And it seems that way at times. I've noticed more, though, that the world's always been messed up and that things come in cycles. Like a few years ago, there was all of these drug problems. I'm sure that's still happening, but we don't hear about it. This last few weeks, there have been murders, there have been shootings, there have been awful things occurring. Do you know that's happening everywhere in the world? But for whatever reason, it's first first page in our city, and everybody knows it. And I keep seeing on Facebook, and I'm very very rarely there because it annoys me. I see that little post that everybody puts up where where Mufasa's sitting beside Simba and said, don't go over there where the black land is, that's uh, that's Rocky Mountain. Uh, In the movie, that's where the scar lives or whatever, and the hyenas and all that. There's a dark section of town over there. If you're on Facebook for very long, you'll notice. Which, I guess in one way, I'm proud of the fact that we just keep making everybody's Facebook pages. That's exciting. Something to talk about in Rocky Mountain. Better to be infamous than famous, they say. Hope. Hope is a fickle thing. Like, not just local things, but it seems like people are worried about the economy. They're worried about where our government's taking us. They're worried about things happening on the other side of the world. We've been doing that for years, worrying about what's going on somewhere else. Because, yes, it will affect us. This is true. But hope, hope's connected to something else. Good, godly hope is connected to something outside of this place. That's what Peter is reminding them of right here. He says, set your hope. Now, I'm going to make this easy for you. There were three imperative verbs in this particular text, which is why I have three particular commands. Imperative is a command-type verb. And when he says, do this, I tend to listen. And I also tend to preach that to you. He says in verse 13, set your hope. That's a command verb. He says to hope trust in, with expectation. And then in the King James, it says to hope to the end. That is the idea that hope until it's complete, don't give out of hope. Hope fully is how the ESV translates it. This is the idea of hope that doesn't run out. Now, you've got to admit, you've had a lot of hopes and dreams in your life, but a lot of times they run dry. There have been many hopes, things you hoped in, that didn't play out the way you thought, and your hope runs out. This is a well that doesn't run dry. That's what Peter's talking about. He's saying this grace at the revelation of Christ is an eternal hope that we can stick to and cling to. And what does that cause us to do? Well, he front loads what that looks like with two ING words, preparing and being. What does it look like to prepare yourself for hope? And the King James is really wild here. And some of you... I don't preach out of the King James, but I love it, man. I love to look back at that. I look at that, the same verse every week in the, in the ancient language. And here, instead of saying preparing your minds for action, it says gird up the loins of your mind. All right, cool. Gird up the... This is a funny image that Peter is, is giving us here, but it wouldn't have been all that odd to them. This is a people, a society who would be wearing robes, generally robes. And in order to take off running... Just picture that, trying to run in a robe. It's, it's, a, it's kind of sketch, all right? So in order to do that, they would literally grab the robe from behind, bring it through the middle, tuck it in. And now they have like robe diaper or something going on. <laughs> gird, that's what it means to gird up the loins. Now I'm ready to roll. Now I can run. This is how you prepare for battle. He's saying do this in your head. That generally the way we walk about life is unprepared. That we're, we're our, the, robe, the, the train of our robe, if it were a mental thing, that we're just casually going about our business. He says, you need to be careful doing that. Instead, tighten up. Prepare your mind for action. Prepare to face combat. 
But prepare all of this in the sense of a hopeful uh, truth in Christ Jesus. And he says then, being sober-minded, that is the sense of, I'm not going to let other things invade and, and cloud my judgment. And I'm, I'm not going to allow other things to come in and tell me untruths. Instead, I'm going to stick to the hope which is in Christ Jesus. This is very careful, careful wording that he gives here. And it's so true of what we're facing right now. That we need to be hopeful, not in some political party or even in some event in your personal life. And if we're honest, that's typically what's going on is that, you know, if you're single today, you're hopeful that a spouse is going to change your life and make it more full and more complete. And there's a piece of that that's true, but I got bad news. It won't work because there's a God-sized hole in your soul that only he can feel. That in a career, you're thinking, if I could just finally get through school, and I know there's some students in here, I'm with you. A school was not a place for me. I just don't like, especially like middle school, high school, college got better when people stopped giving you busy work for no real reason. I couldn't take that. If you don't tell me why I'm doing this work, I'm going to have a hard time doing it. School was difficult. Some of you are like, when I finally get out of school, I'm going to feel hopeful again. I'm going to feel the peace of Christ finally. I got really bad news for you. There's probably people paying your bills right now. That's going to stink. I can remember in college just being happy to go home and have a home-cooked meal. Like, hallelujah. And take all my laundry with me, too. I wouldn't even do it. Y'all are thinking, man, your mom's a saint. She is because that was some funky clothes I'd be bringing home. It'd be like two or three weeks' worth because I was lazy. And I learned real fast. I got married. Some of you are thinking, hey, a spouse, a spouse will make you grow up real fast if you're an immature person. Either that or it's going to fail. You better grow up. Kids, then. Some of you are like, if I could just have children. Those little things are demons sometimes. I love them. They're great. They are a blessing, no doubt. But they're, they're an absolute strenuous thing sometimes. You realize just how selfish you were. It's really a check on self. There's these realities that you face. Friend, whatever it is you're putting your hope on, I got news for you. It's not good enough. It might be good. These are good aspirations. It's okay to long for company and long for a career that's fulfilling. You should. Don't cheat yourself. Don't sell yourself short and do something you weren't called to do in life. But understand this. Christ is the only one that can fill the hole. That's it. And that's the only hope that actually lasts. Look, I love my wife and my kids. I love this job. But every single one of those irritate me sometimes and aren't fulfilling enough sometimes. And when I put all of my hope in this, oh, God has called me. I'm doing what I should be doing. I fall so short. Do you know I have to do just like you do? I better get filled with the Holy Spirit every morning in prayer and in his word. I don't get some special power by doing this. In fact, I feel ultra convicted. If anything, it's scarier. At least you don't have to respons the responsibility of the flock. I worry I'm leading you astray because I'm not in the word enough. I'm not sure I'll ever feel I'm in the word enough. And that's a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit. That's not my flesh saying, hey, you better read the Bible more. Who does that? That's the Holy Spirit saying, I'd really like to talk to you some more. And I'm never going to be okay with it being enough. It's not going to be enough for me until I'm spending every moment with him in glory. Then it'll be enough. I could see him all the time. He says, put your hope in the grace, the revelation of Christ Jesus. This is where it belongs. Friend, do yourself this favor right now. Whatever you've got your hopes in, move them. Yes, work hard unto a career. Yes, be relational. Yes, take care of your body. Yes, these things are important. But put your hope in Christ. Titus writes... Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Why are we able to do it? It's, it's not because we're somehow more powerful. No, it's in the Holy Spirit we are able to devote and have a, a life of righteousness. Why? Because we have, we, we have this hope that looks forward and we're no longer looking at our own stuff. We're looking up and it gives us the ability to live in this evil world with wisdom. Peter writes just a little before what we're reading today. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a 
living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. A living hope. Now that's, that's good wording. A hope that can't die. A permanent, imperishable, undefiled hope. The writer of Jesus Paid It All began the first verse this way. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Now, I'm not sure they were necessarily thinking about First Peter when they wrote that line, but where does your hope come from? Find in me thine all in all. That's life-changing. If you don't think it is, try it out. That you would somehow find your identity, your hope, your peace, your joy, you would find it in Christ alone. That would be life-altering. Test, test, test God in this. Test him that he won't show up in a big way when you trust him in all things. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He has washed it white as snow. We can live remembering this, setting our hope fully on Christ. Now here's the next, and it's going to feel a little like I'm going back to last week a touch, but there's a nuance here. He says, be holy for I am holy. The sense of this is be holy because of his holiness. Last week we were predominantly talking about how holy he is and what that does and how that should impact the way that we respond to his holiness. Now it's a call, a challenge to live differently. We touched on that a little, but let's really dive in for a moment. Because he says the power that we get to live holy isn't our own. It doesn't come from our innate abilities. In fact, that's far from true. If you're honest with yourself, you know your natural tendency is to do something comfortable. Not necessarily sinful, although that can be true, but it's the thing that makes you the most comfortable, which is often not the best decision. Because if, if right or, or good or great was easy, everybody would do it. There's a reason that most of your friends and neighbors are living in a, a poor state. It's because that's more comfortable. It's easier to stay home from work. It's easier to be lazy. It's easier when the fights and the conflicts start happening in your relationships to just say, you know what, I was better off on my own. That's easier. It's easier to just write kids off and say, you know what, I've done everything I can. I'll wipe my hands of them. They're 18. They can go on about their business. I get that there's a piece of that that's true, that they're adults now and they have to go on, but you never give up hope. And you never stop trying. You never stop trying. This is easy, the easy life, and yet we're called to holiness. And this is what bothers people about Christianity. And they'll come to me, and if we get into a gospel conversation, at the core of it, at the root of it, they had all these wonderful questions about, well, what about the, the native who's never heard? And, and what about the problem of evil? And these people have these wonderful philosophical questions that they Googled at some point in their life. But that's not really what's the problem. The problem is, if I say yes to Jesus, that means i got to stop smoking dope. If I say yes to Jesus, I've got to admit to my alcoholism. If I say yes to Jesus, I've got to admit I'm an adulterer. If I say yes to Jesus, it means that, that he might want me to do some things with my life that I'm not planning. For a lot of people, that's really what's underneath all of their questions that when you answer them and you feel like you answer them well, they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's because that's not the problem. The question was never the problem. And when you get to the root of it, you find out the truth and you get to tell them, the honest, good truth. That is, yes. Yes, he, he does want to invade your life. He absolutely does. And what you don't understand is how that's better. That being holy is better. How do I know this? Well, he created us for holiness. He created us apart from sin. He didn't create man to be sinful. Man became sinful. It was not his design. It was rather our rejection of him. His good design for us is that we would live in perfect unity with him. In worship, in joy, in peace. That's heaven. Heaven is a place with no sin. That's the best part about heaven. Yeah, pearly gates and gold streets. That's all cool. Maybe we can fly. Who knows? I'm rooting for that one. You're going to have me throw that out of everyone. God, if that's a thing, I'm down. But that's irrelevant compared to a place with no sin where people don't hurt each other, where people don't think evil thoughts, 
People give you the purest truth and it doesn't offend you anymore because you're whole. You are whole. Do you understand this? Being holy is better. The things that you're doing that make you comfortable, they're just mechanisms to give you a false sense of peace that's not real. And if you go down that road long enough and an addiction or whatever it is, you go down that road long enough, you eventually will find out like everyone does, that's not big enough. It's not good enough. Holiness is. And the best news about this holiness is he says, be holy for I am holy. He doesn't just say, be holy, exclamation point. He says, be holy for I am holy. In fact, the version kind of says it this way, you shall be holy for I am holy. He's, he's commanding, but he's also saying, you're going to be able to do it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to put these thoughts in your mind that are new. In Christ Jesus, these things are new. I desire to pray. And I feel ashamed when I'm not in prayer. I desire to be in his word. And I feel a sense of longing when I'm not. When I tell you a lie, I feel guilty. Now, I think that happens to a lot of people, but in Christ Jesus, it's nagging. It's, and I don't mean that bad. I mean it as in, he won't let me sleep until I call you and say that wasn't true. That's me. And the more I walk in Christ, the more he makes me holy. And you know what happens as a result? I feel a sense of peace and joy. I feel a sense that I'm not telling lies. I feel a sense that I'm doing what is best for myself and for others because I know Christ is with me. Holiness, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is like the greatest conscience of all. And this gives me life. He says, like obedient children, if you want to say you're one of his, then obedience is part of the puzzle. In Romans chapter 80, Paul writes, if you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, instead you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. That means Daddy. That's a close, familial relationship. You are now mine, and I am yours. And he says, because of this, verses 14 and 15, because of this, you can stop being conformed to your former ignorance. Now, we got to come to this place. We have to come to this moment in time where we have said yes to Jesus, and he points at that thing that's messed up, and he says, yeah, you got to leave that alone. you got to go away from that. That's got to stop. That, that's a mess right there. And you go, but God, but God, that right there got me through the last decade. Do you understand? Like, that thing has helped me survive. He says, don't be conformed to that because that's, that's just an abyss. He says, come on, be holy for I am holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. That means consecrated. That means set apart. These things are already true for you. When God sees you, he sees Christ Jesus in you. He already sees the one set apart. Now he's saying, come on. This is why Paul writes, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's walk, follow me. Let's walk behind Christ. Christ has paid this price to make us holy. The writer of Hebrews in th chapter 13 says, Jesus suffered and he died. Why? To make his people holy by means of his own blood. Now this is a cool reality and this is really great news that in Christ Jesus you are holy. And you are being made holy. <laughs> Whoa. That's my in fact, and the writer of Hebrews also writes in this, you have, you have been made perfect that which you are being made holy. That is, in, in God's view, he sees Christ but at the same time, he's still sanctifying. He's still making you more set apart, more consecrated. Therefore, let us stop. I like the Apostle John for this reason. Those of you who have read much Paul know that he can word things that are pretty difficult. and You've got to really unpack them. Whereas John is a good old fisherman, saved and touched by God. And writes like a granddad sometimes. That's what he's doing in 1 John chapter 2. He says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This means that before the throne, when we make a mistake, Christ Jesus says, Yeah, I know. And I paid for that one too. That's a, that's a sobering thought. I don't know if this helps you or not, but that's a thought that has helped me somewhat to consider after I've failed again, to come to that moment in repentance and say, I'm sorry, Lord, that yet again you had to hang on the cross for me, that that precious blood was for that. 
I'll put that up there with you again. The more I consider this offering that Christ has done, the, the less likely I am to want to live for myself. Instead, I want to live for him. He says propitiation. This is the idea that there is a judgment that needs paid. And it's a righteous judgment, and Christ has done it. That's the idea of propitiation, a payment, a ransom. Now, <clears throat> here's what Christ is doing on your behalf, my friend. Because I don't want to leave you in this state. In fact, I try very hard in my preaching and, and always have to remind you that it's the Spirit's power in you that causes you to be holy. It's not your own ability. And that's good. That's careful uh, instruction because I know we're human and we're broken and we're going to fall short and we're going to fail. But in Christ Jesus, we are more and we are set apart and he desires better for us. Jesus in the story in John chapter 8, there's a woman who's being accused and they're about to stone her to death and Jesus shows up. This might be a familiar story to, to you. In fact, it's it maybe in the Passion. I can't remember. There's a movie that, that kind of puts this in a picture and that is Jesus walks up and draws a line in the sand and steps over there with the woman accused and tells the crowds, all right, ye who is without sin cast the first stone. And the crowd begins to vanish. And then he says what he says in John chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus say, says to her, woman, where are those accuser, accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What does it mean to walk in Christ Jesus? To walk in the light of life. He's, his instruction is not, hey, good news, I don't condemn you. Now go about your business. So he says, good news, you're not condemned. Go and sin no more. That's why our, our motto is careful, y'all. We say, come just as you are and be forever changed by the love of Jesus. It was a soft way of saying, guess what? Things are going to change. We love you. You show up just like this woman did, and so do I. We show up in this building, and we're all accused. And yet Christ says, I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. Walk in the light of life. Why? Because it's better for you. It is a better life. And not just that. Because of our love for him, we follow him willingly. The writer of our hymn today wrote in verse 2, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. That thing that is stuck to me, a leper that is incurable. And yet Christ can do it. He can change the leper spots. He can melt a heart that is stony and separate. Can you do this? Live remembering how Jesus has paid it, causing you to be holy for he is holy? And then the last way, and this one, I almost need more time. I'm going to do my best here. Be reverent because of his precious blood. Be reverent. This is me attempting to get out what he means at verse 17. He says something that's strange. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. Fear is normally for us looked at as a negative thing. In fact, it is the word here, phobos, which is where we get the word phobia. That's a negative fear. Some of you have phobias. Agoraphobia, that's the, the fear of the market technically, but it's like a fear of crowds. Arachnophobia, a bunch of y'all have that. My wife has bugophobia, whatever, I don't know what that would be, every bug, whatever the bug is, especially roaches. I'm sure there's some Latin word for roachophobia, but we all have phobias, fears of heights. And for a lot of us, it's a deeper phobia, like a fear of missing out. A lot of people have this fear that I'm going to somehow, life is going to pass me by and I'm going to miss it. Phobia. It's almost always negative, but here is not the sense. Because phobos can have a, a more well-rounded meaning as, as awe or reverence. And what he's really talking about here is not to conduct yourself with like, Oh, God, don't destroy me, but rather, I cannot believe what you've done for me, God. How am I worthy? Awe, reverence. When, when somebody pays something for you that was beyond your ability to pay it, 
I mean, you would already feel a sense of reverence for that person. Just, oh my goodness, you paid my car off? Like, fathom that. Oh my goodness, you paid for college for me. You paid, you paid, and, and this happens all the time, and I'm not sure women do this, but like, a whole wedding will be paid for for you. I hope, I got three daughters. It better be some thankful girls. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm not even saving yet. I got a lot of work to do. It's a lot of weddings. Reverence. When you really consider what Christ has done, you conduct yourself with that type of phobos, awe, reverence, in this season of life. And he says something, another thing that's kind of strange, he says, in this time of exile, did you catch that? Verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now hold up. We've been in Nehemiah, and we've been in Daniel, and we've been over there in these times of the exile. Now we're here in 1 Peter. This is the first century. It's like 500 years later. What is he talking about? He's not talking about that exile. Although you could say he's using that term on purpose to, to reflect for the Hebrew people, hey, guess, do you remember what that taught you? It taught you to see Christ or see God again. That time in Babylon shook you up. Now what he's saying is a little different. He's saying this time on this earth, we are sojourners. That means we're wanderers. We're in exile in this season. This isn't our home. That's what Peter is saying, Christian, believer, church. I don't care how beautiful your home is or how dilapidated it is. I don't care how good your job. I don't care how good your life or how miserable. This isn't your home either way. Your home, your destination is eternal. And it's far off, but for some it will be closer. This is really good news underneath this, is that we conduct ourselves with reverence, knowing that we serve a Christ who we are going to see permanently. And while we're in this season, which is short in the scheme of things, we can live with a sense of reverence. And then he makes it super clear. In fact, the heart of this whole text is in verse 18, I think. Knowing that you were ransomed. Ransomed from your former ways. That is your ignorance, your sin, your brokenness. You were ransomed. Some versions there say literally paid. In the New Living it says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life. Futile means empty or vain. What was once pointless, he set you free. You... Are free. And how did he do it? <laughs> Not with perishable things. This is important. This is an important piece of the gospel here. Peter is reminding us of something. That God's judgment for us was, was righteous. And it was spiritual in nature. And that for all the cool things we have in this life, none of that material stuff could do anything about it. He uses really the main economy of the day, silver and gold. We could say dollars and pounds. We could say, we could say anything. I don't know. We may come into a season before long where it's vegetables. You know, We might go back to an agrarian society if we keep up our foolishness. Who knows? But no matter what the material is, the greatest thing he could consider at this time, these perishable things, silver and gold, would not do it. They were not even close. Instead, verse 19, the precious, that is at great price. That word, timios, means held in honor. The greatest thing he could possibly do was give himself. As a sacrifice, God said, I will pay, my, I will pay your debt myself because you can never pay it. That's why Christianity for some is complete and utter foolishness. Because we have to face this reality. We have to come to a God and say, I'm not enough and I'm never going to be enough. And the only way I'm coming is if I say Jesus is enough for me. And there's nothing I can do. I can't live a better life. I can't, I can't meet the right people. I can't believe this or that. I have to have Jesus. And for many, that's a bridge too far. Because we live in such a system of earning, we want to know that we can do it. And yet the only thing in this situation we can do is say yes to Christ. We have to humble ourselves. That's difficult for a for, for, for prideful people to lay on our face and say, I am not enough. 
But that's the idea of Peter here. Reverence. The greatest debt of all time has been paid. And not just for us, but John writes the sins of the whole world. He did it. And all I can do is fall on my face and say, I don't know why you chose me, but thank you. I don't know why you died for me, but praise God for it. You do that every day. You fall on your face when you get out of bed in the morning. You'll live different, I guarantee you. You'll walk different that day. Start your day with reverence. Who am I? Who am I, God, that you would die for me? Help me now to live for you. It's the least I could do. The, the bare minimum I could do is to give my life for you after you've paid all that. The lamb, the lamb without blemish, Paul now instituting this imagery. Now I want to finish by unpacking a little something here in verse 20 and 21 that's extra neat. <laughs> he could have left this part out because it was good enough had he just stopped at verse 19 and said the, the precious blood of Christ, this is why we're in awe, this is why we set our hope, this is why we can live holy, this is, this is why we are in reverence. But then in verse 20 and 21 he goes a step further just to let us know God is cooler than you thought. Here's why he's cooler than you thought. In verse 20, he says he was made manifest. That is the idea of the word became flesh. This is the idea of the incarnation. And then he goes on to say it was foreordained. It was predetermined (laughs) that he would be the great atoning sacrifice for sin. One of the commentator writers here reminds us that redemption was never an afterthought. That means that the creation of the world, Jesus Christ, Son of God, already knew he would have to pay that price. If you believe in a God who is all-knowing and omniscient and omnipotent and all, all of those omnis, if you believe in that God, then you must believe in a God who stands outside of time. Time itself is his creation. He is not bound by matter, time, space. Any of these things do not bind him, which means at the point of creation, he stands outside this little ball that for him is just a period and is a whole lifetime for us. He says, okay, I know that if I create these two made in my image and I make them for worship, I know that they're going to fail. And I know even before I create, foreordained, predestined, predetermined before time that I would sacrifice for him. Uh, that, that, is, that is incredible news. That redemption was plan A. That means when we messed up, God was not surprised. That means this wasn't his, oh, I better bail him out plan. No, he knew already. And he loved us enough to do it anyway. That's an incredible God. And an incredible love. I will make these people in my image. And they're going to fail. But I love them enough to do it anyway. We get just a glimpse of that, and I mean a small glimpse of that when we make a child, when we have a child, right? If we're honest, we know that kid's going to come out and they're going to have some problems. If we're honest, we, now some of you aren't honest. Some of you, I show up at your hospital to visit your child, and you say, this is the most beautiful child ever made. And he or she is going to be perfect. They're perfect. Look at them, how perfect they are. To me, they look like a slimy lizard, but to you, they're perfect. All babies come out looking like slimy lizards. I don't care how beautiful you think they are, especially when they first, I've seen it four times. It's scary when they first come out. We get just a tiny glimpse of that, knowing that I I still want to have this child. I know it's going to be hard. I know this child might do things sometimes that really hurt me. If you're an honest parent, you know that's true, and God did the same thing on a grand scale. He says, I know. I know. I'm not even going to get out of the first generation before they make a mistake. Yet I love them enough to sacrifice myself for them. That's incredible. Just that mere thought of redemption being his plan A shook me up this week, really made me start thinking about how God, how much he really does love me. That he chose me in spite of me. That he knew exactly that I would have all of these flaws and and that I would be such a mess. And yet he said, I'm going to do it anyway because I care for you and I want you for myself. 
And you can come at this all kinds of different doctrines. There's all kinds of different theological ways to look at this. I think at the heart of it is, is God's deep love and mercy for us. Is that really the heart of it? Is that why in the world would he create a, a people who could choose evil or choose good? I, I think if he had just made us unable to choose evil, we would have been automatons. We would have been robotic. I think he wanted a people that could truly choose to love him. And that's real love. That's, that's not forced. I think underneath somewhere, and I don't have some cool theological term for that, but I think that's what's at the core of some of this, is that God wanted a people who would choose him. And the only way to get that is that there would be the option not to choose him. And many people choose that route. But it is not what's best. It is not even close. He says, so that Jesus would pay for all of this at the very right time. And that he became, that, Christ, that God raised him from the dead. There's so much great information unpacked at the end. The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 2, Serve the Lord, therefore, with reverent fear. Rejoice with trembling. Paul writes to the Ephesians, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And Isaiah says clearly, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will wake, make them white as snow. That sounds familiar to you, I bet. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. This is the hymn writer's third and fourth verses. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died, my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Reverence. When I think about the precious blood of Jesus, I'm in awe. And so should you. So I would encourage you this week, put your hope in Christ Jesus. Nothing else. It's okay to have small hopes, but your main, your priority, your focus, your hope is in him. Be holy for he is holy. As an obedient child, because you love him, you follow him. You imitate him because he is worth imitation. You're reverent. Start every day this week. Start every day for the rest of your life remembering, wow, I'm a broken man saved by grace. By the precious blood of Jesus, the God of the universe did this for me. Let that reverence drive your life. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Beyond our ability really to even word it, we thank you for your son Jesus who paid it all. What, what amazing news. What an amazing gospel this is. That, yeah, we have to face the truth that we are not enough. Yeah, we have to face the truth that in and of ourselves we're imperfect, we're broken. And that there's nothing we can do to climb those stairs. There's nothing we can do to bridge the, that gap. That there's... There's an abyss between you and I, and yet, God, you did it. You paid it all. That's fantastic news, Lord. All I can say to you for that is thank you. And I'm yours. I can't speak that for anyone else in this room, but for myself, Lord. And I fail all the time. I make mistakes all the time. I, I, I drive myself nuts about this, Lord. But in the end, hear my heart, Lord. I am yours. Sanctify me. Make me holy for you are holy. Help me to live a life that clearly shows off reverence to you. That this will be a life of glory before you, God. Please do that in me. And I pray that for your people, your church. I thank you for those involved that are, that are in this place with us today, your church. I thank you for them. I pray that you would move in their heart. Stir them up. And perhaps a way they haven't experienced in a while or maybe they've never experienced. That God, we can live a new life in Christ Jesus. Because of that precious blood, Lord, we can live totally different. And it is a far better life that glorifies you. Lord, thank you for who you are to us. I recognize that someone may have come in today and they're, they're checking us out. But Lord, I pray, I pray you've stirred up in their heart that they feel a sense of calling. Whatever that looks like for them, they feel, they feel you inviting them somehow. 
that the Spirit of God is in this place. I recognize that now. And that they're inviting you, my friend, to say yes to Christ. And yes, it is life-changing. Yes, He desires to make you new. Yes, there's some stuff in your life that is not good for you that He will seek to change. But He loves you. And He's redeemed you. And He does not condemn you. If you've come in this place today, you feel that invitation, I pray you will say yes. And you could say it right along with me now. If it's your desire, my friend, to make a confession of faith, you can pray this with me. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That salvation comes at confession and then it's followed by life. <sighs> Growing, amazing life change. If that's you today, Lord, or friend, if that's you today, pray to the Lord with me. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe, Jesus, that you paid it all. I believe that you are Lord of all things. I'm so thankful that redemption was your plan A. I want to receive that redemption now. I recognize that that gift has been giving, given and, and I'm, I'm offering myself to you now, Lord. Would you, would you give me that gift? I receive it that you died on the cross for my sake, that you are Lord of my life. And God, I believe that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I believe in the cross and the resurrection, and that gives me great hope. And now I pray, Lord, that you guide my steps, guide my life. Help me to overcome these things that are actually hurting me. Help me to understand my relationships. Give me wisdom on this life journey. Help my life to be a sweet song to you that it would glorify you, change me, help me to revere you, make me holy, for you are holy. Dear friend, if you prayed that, welcome to the family of God. and We are praying right beside you. Lord Jesus, make us holy, for you are holy. Help us to walk according to your purpose, not our own. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.